You know, for some, Christmas is a wonderful time. It's a time of family. It's good. It's traditions. It's joys. You're just a walking Hallmark movie. And for others of you, it's a problem. It's a problem because family is coming. It's a problem for other people because you are coming. There is just... I've had people ask me to pray for you. I I know who you are. For some, Christmas is warm and fuzzy. For you, it's some of you, it's not. Job is tough. Marriage is tough. Marriage is ending. Uh, Addiction has taken hold. Health is tough. Chronic pain is real. And some of you are just have a sting of something painful that's happened. And those Hallmark movies make you want to throw up, to be, if you're honest with yourself. The things that make life hard become harder in December for everyone. And now it's Advent season. Advent means coming. It's a season where we remember the first coming of Jesus and look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And we've taken on the symbol of light. In Baptist churches, you see candles maybe once a year and you get to see candles lit once a year. And here, we're not a Baptist church, but essentially. And you, you have these candles lit uh, in commemoration week after week uh, for the coming of Jesus, looking forward also to his return. And so Advent is time when we're supposed to uh, picture ourselves in the first century, uh, enslaved, occupied by a foreign government, longing for a king, and celebrating God stepping out of heaven and enwrapping himself in flesh. I mean, this is confrontation, confrontation of what we value, confrontation of our calendars, confrontation of what we worship, but it's also comfort because we are coming face to face to all the longings of our life. That's what Christmas is. So if you're single, married, dating, kids, no kids, I would implore you to build into your life this December some sort of rhythm to create traditions that you will follow. Our family has a few that we just do to help us remember that what's going on so that when the calendar seems to explode with things that you're like, how is this even possible? We're never gonna see each other. We force ourselves into these traditions to remember the rhythms and remember that Christ has come. And so build into these rhythms, check your calendars, spend time with people, sit in silence, try to remember what this is about. And so what we're gonna do on Sunday mornings is look at the book of Isaiah as we come into and come through Advent. Now, Isaiah, one of the most quoted books in the New Testament, Isaiah, one of the most treasured books in the whole Bible. In fact, when people read the Old Testament, they essentially go Psalms, and Isaiah. People love Isaiah. They memorize chapters of Isaiah. So Isaiah's name means the Lord saves, and Isaiah is writing during a turning point point in the time of God's people. So in around 740 BC, Isaiah starts writing, and for 60 years, he writes things down, and that's what we have in the book of Isaiah. And it, it has judgment and it has redemption. Judgment and redemption. It kind of goes over and over and over again. So here's what's happening. You have Assyria who is threatening God's people. You have God's kingdom divided into two parts, the northern and the southern. The southern kingdom aligns it, I know this is crazy, with Syria. And so Syria and the southern kingdom come to Judah, the northern kingdom, and say, come align with us or Assyria is going to wipe us out. Fight the battle with us. And King Ahaz says, no. And he aligns himself with Assyria, not Syria, and Assyria ends up taking over the northern kingdom, ends up taking over the southern kingdom, and ends up wiping out 
Syria. That is the darkness of Isaiah 9. So you come into this passage in Isaiah 7, the people are trembling, their hearts are trembling. King Ahaz's heart trembles like the forest or the trees in the forest. That is, Ahaz is going to get what he deserves. And since he's a representative of God's people, God's people are going to get what they deserve in having King Ahaz. And isn't that right? Like every time we have an election, what do we say? This is a reflection of who we are. Whether we like it or not, this is us. And so King Ahaz aligns himself. Isaiah pronounces judgment. And then in Isaiah 8, coming into Isaiah 9, we read these words. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust in the thick darkness. So darkness, gloom, anguish, and now the most treasured passage, I think one of them, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. First, light in an unexpected place. Here it is, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. So remember Isaiah 8, what did it say? Darkness, gloom, anguish. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you. The people rejoice at the harvest. The warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across the shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for fire. Okay, first question, what is the darkness that Isaiah is talking about. Well, he tells us in all the chapters leading up to it, and these are pretty applicable. Number one, Isaiah 2, 6. They are syncretistic. That means they've combined their religion with other gods. They've taken parts of their faith. They go, we like this part. I don't know if you guys have ever done that before. We like this. We don't like this. This goes in the trash. We cut out these parts of the Bible. We like this part of the Bible. It gets highlighted. It's wonderful. Here's Isaiah 2.6. They are full of superstitions. The Lord, you, now you are full of superstitions. From the east, they practice divination of the Philistines. They clasp their hands with the pagans. That's Isaiah 2.6. They have embraced Eastern religion, essentially. They have said, you know, uh, we like our religion, but we want to add things to it. And so you ask yourself this Christmas season, am I taking any religious expression and combining it with the Christian faith? Is there any religious expressions happening in our culture right now that you take and you go, let me add that to Jesus? That's the darkness. Darkness number two, economic injustice, Isaiah 5, 8. Woe to those who add home, add house to house and join to field to field till no space is left and no one is, except you alone live in the land. So, Maybe you can picture this. The wealth is in the hands of a few people. They, the poor have nowhere to live. The families are being squeezed out. So just, just maybe you can picture this. Let's just say the Gallatin Valley, it's not, but is God's chosen land. And he is giving it to God's chosen people. They're supposed to have it. And then a few people come in and they buy up everything and in buying up everything, they price everyone out. Anyone know what I'm talking about? 
The people who lived here forever is like, I don't know. Look what it says. They, they, they take the fields and they just stack them on top of each other, house to house. That means they, they have the house, they have the house, they have the house. A few people are taking all the, all the land and all the property and squeezing out the poor. And do you know what God calls that? Darkness. Darkness. Sometimes we think of, you know, like Jesus is coming to rescue us from our sin and our personal sin. Sure, yes. But what else is he rescuing from? Economic injustice where the poor get squeezed out of their homes because the rich have all the resources and can take it. And they do. All right. Number three, they have a celebration of the wrong kind. This is Isaiah 5.11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning and run after drink, who stay up into the night till they're inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels of, and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the works of his hands. There are other places in scripture where people are drinking wine, everything's great, it's a celebration. But for some reason here in this celebration, something is missing. What is missing? They had no regard for the deeds of the Lord. This Christmas, ask yourself, in all the celebrations that are going on in family gatherings or lack of family gatherings, are you remembering what God has done. Is that at the center or is that just kind of periphery? Next, they mock God, Isaiah 5. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. Let it approach. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel so come that we may know it. This is, this is them mocking God. This is them saying, he's not coming. Go ahead. This is Jesus on the cross. The crowds come and say, he said he would tear the temple down in three days. He's not tearing it down. He's not going to rebuild it. Come and save yourself, Jesus. It's a mock. This is what the mock is. He's not around. I can do what I want. You don't see him acting in any way. Mocking God. They embrace ethical standards that are upside down. Isaiah 5.20. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil, darkness for light, light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Man, are you in the, do you live in a place potentially that says thing, that are things that are evil and that goes, that's great, that's good, that's amazing. Do you think if I started naming those things, you would agree with all of them? It, it's safe for the pastor uh, and I'm not going to do it, but it's safe for the pastor to not get in details, right? Because everyone goes, well, that's not evil. Are you sure? And this is an interesting one, Isaiah 8. Do not call conspiracy. Everything this people calls a conspiracy, do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. Now, we don't know what the conspiracy is, but you get the sense of what it is. You start living in fear, and you're, you're prone to fear, and so you take a conspiratorial explanation to try to tamp down your fear. Just, just think of the political arguments these days. What, what are they in the extreme? They are conspiratorial. They are preying on your fear. These people are going to take over. This unknown deep state group is working against you, and here are the lines on the wall that connect everything, but they don't connect everything. They connect nothing. And you embrace a conspiracy. And what does God say to God's people about that? You are walking in darkness if you turn your fear into a conspiracy theory. You don't think the church needs to hear that one? 
We love conspiracy theories. And despite all of this, God in his mercy is gonna do something now. And he places a light to shine in the Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, this is the place where the foreigners, I put that in quote, live. This is where the Canaanites live and the Hittites live. If you're taking over Israel, you have to come through this land first. And so Zebulun and Naphtali that are written in, in, down in verse one, those are, the, those are the tribes that get hit hardest when Assyria comes and wipes people out. So Assyria comes in, Assyria comes in, they take all the leaders out of the northern kingdom, all the political ruling class, and they, let, and they put in their people. And then people begin to intermarry and have interfaith. And so for now for centuries, this goes on, and this becomes the place that no one likes. Just to give you an example, uh, in John's gospel, Jesus, uh, Nathaniel is introduced to Jesus and the disciples come to Nathaniel and they say, hey, Nathaniel, uh, Jesus is from Galilee of the Gentiles, Nazareth. And, and what does he say? Nazareth, Nazareth, what good could come from there? And so Isaiah nine at the very beginning confronts where you think God can show favor. Do you have a place in your mind that you think, please don't move here? You will ruin the last best place. What a proud statement. Total arrogance. Do you have someone's accent in mind and say, oh, yeah, they're speaking like that. They're clearly not very smart. You know what I'm talking about? This propensity inside of us to create a pecking order based on where you're from, who your family is, what your skin color is, what economic situation you find yourself in. And all of those things, Isaiah 9.1 smacks you with. In the Galilee of the Gentiles, he will do what? He will bring joy. Verse two, he, they will walk in the light. Verse three, they will have joy. So they're walking in darkness. That is deep darkness. And when we read scripture, you know, you have uh, light is always associated with life. Darkness is always associated with death. And so you don't ever say, wow, they're really walking in the light. They're dead. You know, you don't ever say they're really alive in the dark. You don't say that. Light, darkness, life, and death. What does God say in Genesis? He's been beginning to create the heavens and the earth. What comes first? Light. And when light is burst into, into being, and there is no sun yet, but somehow there's light, what happens? Life. And so they're in deep, deep darkness. And this is a place devastated by war now. So you can imagine, you're in a place that's devastated by war, it's in shambles, and here comes this promise, the sun is gonna come up, you're not gonna make it come up. You know, I'm not looking up to the east in Bozeman and going, here comes the sun, S-U-N, here comes the sun. Come up, sun, come up. Like, I can't do that. So here comes the light. And then verse four, for as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke of, that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. So Midian uh, was a battle in the Old Testament in Judges where God's people won despite being completely outnumbered. And so he, Isaiah goes, remember Midian when there was like 300 of us and a bazillion of them and we won? That's not a technical term, but it was a lot of people I can't remember, so I'm making it up, okay? And so here comes Assyria. Assyria in, their, in the uh, 
you know, literature we have of them, they talk about putting on the yoke of an oppressor, the yoke of slavery, the yoke of dominion. And so Assyria writes about that in their papers or in their documents or literature, whatever it is. And now here comes somebody who, like in the days of Midian, because Assyria is overwhelming, is going to take that yoke and break it in half. Now, when did Isaiah 9, 1 through 5 happen? Like, when, when did all of these things come true? Well, I'll show you two places. The first one uh, is in Matthew chapter 4. So Jesus has just been tempted by the devil. And then what happens? When Jesus heard John had been in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum. He went by the lake, by the area of, oh, start paying attention now, Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet, Isaiah. So when did Isaiah 9 happen? Well, here goes Matthew. To fulfill what was said through Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light is dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. There it is again. I love when, I just have to quote scripture and you can just see it so clearly. Jesus comes into the area that is the Galilee of the nations that Isaiah 9 is talking about. And when he gets there, Matthew goes, you know what? This is Matthew 9. Jesus is now living in the area and he's coming under, the, under an oppressor, the Roman oppressor. He's, he's coming now to preach a message. And so the light now dawns in Jesus Christ himself, and the message is, repent, I'm here. I'm here. Messiah is here. Now, there are two further Bible study things. If you want to get into deep Bible study, here are two things that uh, you can do further study of. Number one, Matthew changes the wording of Isaiah to fit his needs. Go figure that one out. Number two, um, everyone's like, what? Yeah. Uh, Number two, Jesus seems to be taking the same route as Joshua when Joshua conquered the land. He was in the southern kingdom first when Joshua conquers it in the book of Joshua, and then he goes north. And this is exactly what Jesus does, as if to say, I'm now coming to conquer the land again. I am Messiah. This is the land that is promised, and I'm taking it over. But it's not just the place, it's the message. Do you know what Jesus says in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who, you guys probably know the KJV, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, shoot, burdened, I'll just do NIV, that's all I know, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. So in Isaiah 9, God says, someone's going to come and like Midian and break a yoke. You're going to be delivered from slavery. You're going to be delivered from oppression. Someone's going to come and win a battle. And now here comes Jesus who knows Isaiah and says, Take my yoke. Now, Jesus' yoke is interesting because one, it's way harder. Uh, Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? You, You read the Old Testament law and you're like, okay, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Fine, okay. And then you get the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, wow, this is impossible. You say, don't commit adultery. I say, anyone who looks at a woman has committed adultery and and lost after them has committed adultery. Oh, Uh, You say, do not murder. Anyone who hates his brother's heart, murder. Oh, that seems pretty heavy. And yet Jesus offers it in such a way that it's supposed to be easy, supposed to be light, 
So to have a yoke is to be conquered. To have a yoke is to be in submission. To have a yoke is to say, I lose, you win. And so Jesus comes and says, come here. Do you want it? That's a lot different, isn't it? Come here. Do you want it? I'll give you rest. It's light. I'm I'm gentle. Your souls will be at rest. And Isaiah 9 says, how does it happen? Isaiah 9, 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. That is, the king will destroy the oppression. And there's not really even a fight. Like, we don't get to be like, okay, here we go. We're going to fight. And then this Messiah figure is going to fight. It's the Messiah figure's fight, and there's not really a battle anyway. You know, one of the craziest scenes in the Bible, of course, is in the book of Revelation, but in the book of Revelation, you have God's holy city in Revelation 20, and all the armies come up against it, and then they disappear. There's no fight. There's no battle. Nothing happens, and it just goes, the end. That's what this king is going to do. Oh, everyone's going to come and fight. The end. It's like Psalm 2, right? God, God sits up in heaven and mocks and laughs at the kings of the earth. Like, give me a break. You're, I created you. Give me a break. Only place in scripture God laughs is mocking people. Amazing. I don't know if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is the second most read book in history, published book in history. If you want to read it, don't read the old English unless you're super smart. I I can't even read the new English and figure it out. So try to get a modern translation from old English to modern English. But in the story, you meet this person named Christian. And Christian has a burden on his back. And he becomes a Christian. Uh, His name is Christian. He becomes a Christian. He goes through this thing called the wicked gate. And he still has the burden and you gotta wonder, what is that? And for the Christian now, I, I, think I, know what, I think I know what John Bunyan's trying to say. He's the author. John Bunyan would describe his conversion this way. I came to Christ, I knew I was forgiven, and yet I still was wrecked with psychological guilt, burden. And it wasn't until, in Bunyan's word, he applied what he believed did that burden fall off. And then as you read Pilgrim's Progress, it fall, it's, it's off of him for the rest of his life. There is something about Jesus where Christians in this room, you come to Christ. He says, come to me. And you take the yoke and you still have a burden on your back. And that is the psychological shame and guilt that until you apply what Christ has done and in in Pilgrim's Progress, it's he looks at the cross, will that burden also fall off? You know what I'm talking about. This guilt and shame that runs in your mind on occasion that makes decisions for you. That's psychological guilt. And Jesus says, take my yoke. I will break the one you have and you can have this one. It's easy. And your guilt can fall off. That's amazing. It's ever dawned on you that this light's already come. Like we're not talking about Isaiah as if this isn't true. (laughs) Like Matthew's already happened. And you know, uh, just so you know, and, uh, this guilt is readily available to be removed now. All right. Unexpected place now for the titles. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So it's not literal light, it's a child. It's a child to an unexpected place. In Isaiah 7, what does it say? Behold, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here comes this child into this world, and this is why we see it as Jesus, because you read those titles, and you don't go, oh, yeah, that's a human. You don't go, yeah, that's uh, King, if you, if you know Bible history, that's King Hezekiah for sure. Oh, that's King Josiah for sure. You don't call a king mighty God. Something else is going on. And when we re Christians read it, we see Jesus on this page. It, it seems so clear to us. Who, who else could it be? This is what is being promised, the incarnation of God. You know, I... Do you ever just pause and think what that really means for unto us a child is born? That uh, Mary held her creator, that the hands that are holding him are hands he created, that Mary is nursing the son of God, that God is vulnerable, that God is uh, in danger that the one who created Satan is now tempted by him. The one who is now living on this earth can feel all the things we feel so he can relate to us. You, just, just on your spare time, survey the other religions and see if they have the answer like this. What more do you want? I mean, it's true whether it's helpful or not. It's still true. But what more do you want? But he's not just a child. It's not just a child born. He's a child vulnerable. I mean, just one of these days for fun, you know, for kicks and giggles, just walk uh, down this hallway and see all the little tiny babies. And you're not ever going to be like, oh, they're fine. If we just sat them down on the ground, nothing would happen. If we just laid them outside uh, this morning, uh, no one would do anything. No, no. Everyone is on high alert for all of these children because they're vulnerable. And so this is a child born. And it's a child given. This is a gift. And this is a pride-swallowing gift. So verse 5, a fight goes on. So this child's going to born. He's going to break everything. But what is the gift? Well, Isaiah tells us 50 chapters later about Isaiah 53. Well, that's bad math. Uh, 44 chapters later. Uh, here it is, Isaiah 53. He was pierced. This is the child. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment was that brought us peace, because what is he? He's the Prince of Peace, was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We, like sheep, have all gone astray. Each of us have turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, the battle is over. Now, why is this such a pride-swallowing uh, gift? Because once you realize the lengths that God took in order to offer it to you, you realize how bad of a situation you're in. Just let me do this on a lesser extent. Let's just say this Christmas, your best friend or spouse gives you a book titled How to Be Kind. Why are they giving you that book? I remember I first became a Christian. The first book this pastor gave me was a, by a book by Andrew Murray. It was called Humility. You should read this. 
Uh, what if you bought your spouse a treadmill for Christmas? I'm not saying I did that, but I did do that once. It was bad. What if they gave you a book on, I don't know, dieting? What, what, what would you have to do? You would have to swallow your pride to receive that gift. You'd be like, thank you? Question mark. Once you come to grips with how far God had to go to get your attention, which you've been ignoring him anyway, and then he says, here it is freely, do you want it? You say, oh no, I'll think about it later. You gotta take the pill and swallow. This is pride swallowing gift. Do you know the lengths God has done what he has done in order to draw you to himself in love? Do you, man, sometimes I wonder what guests think of us uh, Christians and just people in general. You, you, they walk in the church and we're singing things like, we're washed in blood. That's weird. If you weren't in a church and you sang that anywhere else, people would think you're crazy. And we're saying a God who is invisible, who we never hear from, but we pray to, enfleshed himself and came born to poor people in a, in a, in a stable guest house to an unwed teenage mom. That's what I believe. Does that make any sense? That's what Isaiah 9 is promising. Let's keep going. The government will be upon his shoulders. That's the promise of 2 Samuel 7. Someone will always be on David's throne forever and ever. And now Isaiah 9 says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. You, you see, you, this can't be like some normal kid. This can't be just, oh, this was a king who was born forever. Gonna, gonna uphold justice perfectly and righteous? Like, it's happening. No, it's not just some normal human being. And then we get the cascading now titles. Title one, wonderful counselor. That is, he embodies all of the wisdom of God. And he's wonderful, which means there's, we can't, there's, there's something, we can't get the words out of our mouth to describe what this actually is. It's wonderful. That's the word for, I don't know what to say. It's beautiful, it's glorious. So he's not just a king, you know? Like he's not just bend the knee, Darren. Bend the D, knee, other names in this church. Bend the knee. Uh, you need to take my yoke. It's, I'm here to listen to you and counsel you. But his wisdom is at odds with us, right? Like not not born to a wealthy family. I mean, how, how would you set up Messiah if he was gonna come? Would you set it up with born in a rural area in a nobody place, in a nowhere place, to nowhere people, uh, unwed teenage mom? This is the plan for rescuing the entire race of humankind. And then the apostle Paul, speaking of you and me, says this, but God chose the foolish things of the world, that's all of you and me, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world and me to shame the strong. The, the next passage, I didn't add it, but he, he saves the things that are not. 
How do you like to be described that way? And that's God's wisdom. That's how God in his wisdom is making new people. So it's not only the salvation story, it's the fact that you people are actually saved and me. It's wisdom that is beautiful and glorious and it's wisdom not just to know God, but how to love and how to hate and how to deal with guilt and how to work relationally and how to seek justice and uh, uh, you know, relieve the oppression and what exactly oppression is. It's, it's all those things. Now, if you've been to a counselor uh, many of you have, and many of you have gotten counsel from friends, hopefully. Uh, you know that if you don't tell the truth, that counselor cannot help you, right? Now, most counselors know you're lying, but this counselor definitely knows you're lying. But you aren't going to be able to get any help until you tell the counselor from Bethlehem the truth about you. It's not admitting to yourself uh, I mean, whatever, that's important. It's admitting to him. It's verbalizing it out loud what he already knows. He already knows. He is the wonderful counselor. All right. He's mighty God. That means this is how you know this is not just some normal person. He's a hero God. That is, he's going to win. Other people are going to lose. There is no loss with God. He's always winning the battle. And people who fight him, he laughs at them. Everlasting Father, this is, you're gonna have to sidebar this one on your own. What does it mean Jesus is Everlasting Father? Uh, and there is plenty written on it. Go study it yourself. We'll just say that it seems that Jesus does have Father-like qualities. And even in the Gospel of John, we see things like, I and the Father are one. Those who have seen me have seen the Father. That has to do with the nature of who he is, but certainly he has some sort of Father-like character and his kingship over his people, and then Prince of Peace. The Apostle Paul said it, you know, he came to, to preach peace to those who were near and preach peace to those who were far. This is not uh, just, I preached peace and then conflict, there was conflict, but I dealt with it. This is, I preached, peace comes into the world and then there is no conflict. Some of you have been in conflict this week, I'm sure. If you haven't, good for you. Uh, and in that conflict, some of you said, shut up. And that stopped the conflict, but it didn't end it. Or you ran from the conflict, but you know as soon as you go back into the room, the conflict's gonna exist. That's not what this is. When he says he's the prince of peace, it means that there is no conflict in the future. There's peace with God. I mean, imagine a time, just you, psychologically, Imagine a time you will never wrestle with God. Uh, you'll, never, you'll never be at odds with him. You'll never disagree with him. Imagine a time you've never disagreed with God. All of us think, oh, I don't disagree with God. And about a year later, you're like, oh, yes, I did. Never a time at peace with others, no fights, at peace with yourself, no inner turmoil, no panic attacks, no shame. What does Jesus say in John 14? Peace I leave with you. my peace I leave with you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Eventually, that peace is going to be realized in its completeness. Like zero inner struggle ever. That's amazing. And peace with nature. Isaiah 55 says it. You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst forth burst forth in songs, the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of thorn bush will be the juniper. Instead of briars will be 
will be where the myrtle grows. In other words, you hike in the mountains and no more of those stickers will be in your pants. And at the bottom of your pants or right just underneath the cuff of your pants up against your ankles, making you bleed. You're like, what happened? No more bear spray. Hmm? No more famines. No more sickness. No more hunger. It all ends. Unexpected place, unexpected gift. Now, how do we know this will happen? Look at the end of verse seven. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What is zeal? That is jealousy. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The jealousy of God is one of the driving features of the Bible. Exodus 20 Verse four and five, for example, you shall not bow before them and worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Now, what this means is that everything inside God bends, if, there, if that even is the right way to describe it, is bent towards everyone's affection being on him because only he deserves all of it. Now, people have found this to be quite hard. Uh, Oprah Winfrey left the Christian faith over this right here. She heard a sermon on 1 Corinthians 10. She writes about it, which warns Christians not to provoke the Lord to jealousy. And she thought that can't be right. C.S. Lewis had the same problem. Here's this almighty God, and all he is saying is, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. That seems pretty self-centered until he realized that the whole world is filled with praise. We, we praise people in this room. We honor people. It's, it's part of our DNA. And so here's the source of all the praise. Here's the one that is the source of all our desires. And he walks in and says, Worship me, worship me, worship me. I mean, we don't really think twice about that because, oh, that's God. But think about that for a second. When God says, if I, you know, if I walked around this room, <laughs> let's hope this never happens, but I'm gonna do it right now. Worship me, worship me, worship me. Everyone would be like, you're crazy, get down from there. Wor no, no, worship me, no, worship me, no, worship me. And that is exactly what God is doing because he deserves all of it. So his jealousy fuels everything that happens. Now we think of it in negative terms. Of course we think about it in negative terms. I, but for God, he, he, it's not a negative. It's, it's he is the one who deserves it. Therefore, he is right to ask for it. If someone ever asks you, why does God do something? Isaiah tells us, here it is, Isaiah 48. For my own sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake. You should just start underlining those, right? I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. That is, why does God do the things he does? It's not primarily for any of us. It's for himself. 
And honestly, when I switched that around in my mind, submitting to the various places in scripture where God decides my glory is the most important thing, it radicalizes your view of God and gets you out of the center of the universe. God does things for himself primarily and we receive all the blessing for it. And that's what his zeal will accomplish. There will be someone on the throne. There will be a king. He will uphold the government because God's zeal, his jealousy will make it happen. Now, uh, hey God, it took you 700 years. Hmm? 200 years later, Ezra and Nehemiah come back into the land. It doesn't quite work out. The temple gets rebuilt. It doesn't really come to its full glory. In comes an occupying power in Rome. And into that comes... Jesus in the land of the region of Naphtali saying, repent, I'm here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So unexpected place, unexpected titles, the promise that God will see it through. You can't say to this child, let's be for real now. Uh, it's, it's Christmas. You, we can be honest. You can't say to this child, I think I will just take everlasting uh, father. I'm not taking wonderful counselor. You don't get to counsel me. That's crazy, right? Uh, God, I like this part of the scripture, but I want to live my life this way. And so thank you, uh, but no thank you. I'm gonna do it my way. Like Frank Sinatra, right? Think of what you're thinking. Here comes God into this world made vulnerable for you, for his own sake, in order to offer you a yoke that is easy if you would just come. And so this Christmas, check your calendar, put X's on it, recapture the wonder of what we're talking about here. It's not just candles being lit. It's not just Jesus in the manger. It's not all warm and fuzzies. It's there's a Messiah who's come and is coming again to rescue us. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, if anyone here feels the sting of darkness, may they come into the light now. And for those Christians who are just struggling with, especially the burden, psychological guilt and shame, would you relieve that burden? You have been pierced for our iniquity. You have taken our transgressions on yourself. And so you're a child that was born, a child that is given. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace, almighty God, everlasting father. Thank you for Christmas and thank you that we can worship so freely to be here on this Sunday morning in Bozeman, Montana. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we get to come to the Lord's table to take communion. And the beauty here is, as we talk about this king uh, who sits on the throne, this king who's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, uh, here at the table before us, we have a picture of, 